Almighty God, you've promised that your holy word, which goes forth from your mouth, will not return to you empty, but it will accomplish what you desire. It will succeed in the matter for which you have sent it. May your word have its way, we pray, in every heart this day, through Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen. Please be seated. I want to begin with a question uh, to the men here. How many of you men are practicing or have practiced the same vocation as your father? Raise your hand. One. One. Okay. Yeah. Okay, there's one. That's about what I expect. You know, sons today are very independent of their fathers in terms of vocation, profession, that sort of thing. And it's, it's become unusual to see a son following in his father's footsteps. Now, I'm not saying that's right or wrong. I'm just saying that's very different from the way it was in antiquity. You know, in the ancient world, if your father was a baker, you would bake. If your father was a farmer, you would farm. If he was a shepherd, you would shepherd. It was passed down, it was received, it was given to you. And I want you to remember that, because when we talk about Jesus as Son of God, we're not talking about anything as crass as sexual generation. Not at all. We're talking about a functional category. We're talking about a behavioral category. This man does what his father has passed on to him, what he's given him to do. We'll talk more about that shortly. But keep that in mind. It's important. Now take a look at your gospel reading on the back of your bulletin. This is from Luke chapter 9, the transfiguration of our Lord, beginning at verse 28. We'll make a few comments, then we'll get into our outline. Now about eight days after these sayings, well, what are these sayings? Well, Jesus had asked his disciples, who do men say I am? And he gave various answers. And Peter comes through with that clear confession, you are the Christ of God. And then immediately, this is the point, immediately now, Jesus clarifies what it means to be the Christ. And he says, the Son of Man will go to Jerusalem and be mistreated by the elders, the chief priests, the lawyers. And he will suffer and be put to death. And on the third day he will rise again. This is his first passion prediction. Then he goes on to say, and if anyone would come after me, he must take up his cross and follow me. So these are the sayings now. This passion prediction is the heart and center of it all. So after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James. These are kind of the inner circle of the disciples. I think they probably could keep a secret better than others. I don't know. It's just my guess and went up on a mountain to pray. Now, Jesus is always going somewhere to pray. 
and he shows his dependence upon God. And I ask this question, if Jesus needed to pray so much, why don't you and I pray more? We are at least as dependent upon God as he is. And as he was praying, verse 29, see, he humbles himself as he's praying. The appearance of his face was altered. The Lord exalts him now. And his clothing became dazzling white. That's the color of heaven. And behold, two men were talking with him. Two men. Now this is significant because you'll find in Luke 24 at the resurrection, the women go to the tomb and whom do they meet? Two men clothed in white. And then after the resurrection, 40 days later, the Lord ascends to heaven and the disciples are standing there kind of gobsmacked. And who's present? Two men explaining what's happening, interpreting, just like they were at the empty tomb, interpreting, you see. And so it's this odd thing. You have two men appearing when Jesus is glorified. Kind of explaining, interpreting the meaning of it all. So two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah. Now, why are they significant? Well, there were only two men in the Old Testament who spoke with God directly. And they did that on the mountain, Mount Sinai. This is not Mount Sinai in our gospel lesson, but it's a mountain. These two men spoke directly with God. And guess what? In our gospel lesson for today, here they are again on a mountain speaking directly with the God-man, Jesus Christ, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure. Now, this is important. In Greek, the word is exodus his exit. He's speaking about his exodus and this is freighted with meaning from the Old Testament now. The exodus from Egypt out of bondage, they're redeemed out of slavery and to freedom. The Israelites are adopted as God's own sons. All of them. Men, women, children, they are God's sons. And by son, we're not being sexist. In the ancient world, only sons could inherit. You see. And in Christ, there's neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. We're all one in Christ. We're all sons of God, inheritors of God through Jesus. So this is his exodus. So that exodus in the Old Testament simply looks ahead to the true exodus that Christ accomplishes for all humanity. Not just for Israel, but for all humanity which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Okay, so his, his departure is all about his suffering and his resurrection, his death and resurrection. Even in glory, he can't help but to talk about the cross. Verse 32, Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. 
And as the men were parting from him, and I think, to me, that's significant. Because he's, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. And Moses will be no help there. Elijah will be no help there. They must depart from him. Because he will go to the cross alone. Doing what only he could do. No one else. So they're parting from him. And so Peter gets desperate. He says to Jesus, Let's see, where am I at? Um, okay. Um, I lost. My, I really did lose my place. And uh, Okay. They're parting from Peter says to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He kind of seems to be putting them all on the same level, right? And, and it's a good example that even our best efforts fail in comparison to what God is doing. We may have ideas, we may have inspirational thoughts, but the fact is what God is doing so far supersedes whatever we may think of that it earns this kind of rebuke. So he was not knowing what he said. Verse 34, as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. Now, this cloud is indicative now of the divine presence. This is, you know, clouds denote the presence of God. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. He was found alone. So Roman numeral one, what does it mean to be the only begotten, the, the one of a kind, the unique Son of God? Well, I cite verse 35, which we just read. Also John 1.18, where um, John writes, No one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. If you want to know the Father, you look to Jesus, you see. He's the revealer of the Father. The Father dwells in unapproachable light. You cannot go to him. He must come to you in the flesh and blood of his Son. So verse 35, the word this, well, we're going to break this down and make it really simple. Okay? This, meaning... This one who will accomplish his exodus, his departure in Jerusalem, his exit, his death and resurrection and ascension. This is his saving work. This one is, and is simply means is. In the Lord's Supper, um, Jesus said, this is my body. He didn't mean this symbolizes my body. He could have said that if he wanted. He didn't say this represents my body. Again, he could have said that, but he didn't. He said it is literally, truly my body. And this literally, truly is my son. The word my could denote ownership, but not in this case. It often doesn't denote ownership. It denotes association. Now, I say Harriet is my wife. 
It doesn't mean I own her. It means she's associated with me. I'm associated with her. Uh, Anna and Ivana are my daughters. I don't own them. They're associated with me and vice versa. This is my son. And I, I cite, we changed the first and second readings this morning so we could talk about a little more about sonship. But Psalm 2, the psalmist writes, You are my son, today I become your father. Ask of me, I'll make the nations your inheritance. The ends of the earth, your possession. You see, the son is the heir. The son is the one who inherits everything. He inherits everything. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2. In these last days he spoken to us, God has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, and through whom he also made everything. So he inherits all that God has, and that includes God's functions, God's work. This is why in John chapter 5, and this is true throughout the Gospel of John, uh, Jesus is always saying, my Father works and I work. You see, what the Father does, I do. He, he healed a man on the Sabbath, and that got some of the Pharisees angry. They said, you're breaking the Sabbath, and what does Jesus say? He says, my Father is always at work, and I am always working as well. And that really got the Pharisees mad, because he's making God his Father, making himself, John writes this, making himself equal with God. He shares the same divine nature, in other words. So that really blows a gasket with the Pharisees. And, and so Jesus gave them this answer. He says, truly I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself, but only what he sees the Father doing. You see, the Son is obedient. He copies the Father. Because, and then he adds this, whatever the Father does, the Son also does. Whatever the one does, the other does as well taking on the very same functions as he inherits everything. Not just the possessions of the Father, but the work of the Father. You see, sonship in this context, then, is not the result of some union, some sexual union. That's not it at all. It's, it is a behavior. It is a function that he carries out. This is my son, my chosen one. Chosen is a past participle. That means this choosing happened long ago. It happened from all eternity, by the way. Selected in the past as the most suitable, the most appropriate one to inherit the functions of the Father, to carry on the Father's work. And chosen in this context, and it's always true in the Bible, God's choosing is not exclusive, it's inclusive of all. You know, Abraham's a good example of this, where um, God 
chooses Abraham to be the father of many nations. And he says to Abraham, he says, through your seed, meaning Jesus, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. You see, Abraham is chosen not for his sake alone, but for your sake and mine. When God predestines, when God chooses, it's for the sake of everyone, not to the exclusion of any. So, note, God's choices are never exclusive. They are always inclusive. And then, the words of the Father, listen to him. In other words, if you want to know me, God the Father, you don't come to me. You can't come to me. The Father dwells in unapproachable light. Now, no one has seen God at any time, but God, the only begotten, reveals him. So you go to Jesus. You go to Jesus. And I always like to use a business illustration here. Uh, let's say the father is retiring from the business. He passes on the business to his son. And if you want to do business there, you got to deal with the son. You see, that's the way it works. You don't deal with the father now. You deal with the son. That's how you deal with the father. It's through the son and only through the son. And, and in our gospel lesson for today... There's this passing of allegiance now. If you're, if you're James or John or Peter, you recognize there's a passing of allegiance from Moses and Elijah to Jesus. He's the authority. You see, Moses and Elijah, yeah, they spoke the word of God, but he is the word of God. He is the word made flesh for our salvation. And so we will interpret everything Moses said, everything Elijah said and did, we will interpret it through the lens of Christ crucified and risen for us. Because that is what the scripture is all about. So Moses and Elijah, as great as they were, they're simply foils for Jesus. They are there for contrast. As great as they were, they're nothing standing next to him. So, this is all fine and dandy, but in Roman numeral 2, what difference does it make? You know, we always got to get practical. Uh, what difference does it make? Point A, God sends his one-of-a-kind son into the world to redeem slaves. That's what our second reading was about. We've been redeemed from slavery by Jesus Christ. And, and Jesus said this in the Gospel of John, whoever sins is the slave of sin. <laughs> you know, I... I never cease to be amazed at what arises in my mind. You know, I'm a Christian, I'm a believer, I've got the new nature going. But the old nature is still there. And it's still rebelling against God. And it thinks the very worst things, horrible things, things that wouldn't even, that, that, would, that would make a, 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 a horror movie director wince. That's who we are. Now, thank God, that old nature doesn't rule in you or me anymore, but it's there. And it erupts, and it comes out, and, and it's amazing to me what it thinks of, what it imagines, what it desires. We were once slaves to that. Thank God we've been redeemed from that. And St. Paul says that we were slaves, this is in Galatians 4, we were slaves to the elementary principles of this world. Well, what does that mean? The elementary principles of this world include 
the natural religion of man, which is the religion of the law. It's you get what you deserve. It's the end of Deuteronomy there, the book of Deuteronomy, where, where you know, if you do good, God will bless you. If you don't, God will curse you. Those are the elementary principles of the world. It's, it's the religion of the law. It's if-then theology. It's an if-then relationship. You know, if you do good, then God will respond in kindness. That's like every other religion except the Christian religion and sometimes a false understanding of the Christian religion. It's very conditional. It's very performance-based kind of dealing with God. And we Lutherans like to say, that kind of religion just creates within our hearts the monster of uncertainty. That fear that I really don't know where I stand with God. And if I'm honest with myself, I'm on the outs with him, not in with him. You can never be certain of where you are in that kind of religious thinking. These are the elementary principles of the world that we've been delivered from. You see, God is better than all that. It's not if then with him. If you do your part, then he'll do his part. No, he does his part without our permission, without our asking, without our doing anything. He does it all. That's the gospel. That's the religion of Christianity. That's what we've been redeemed into. And point B, through our baptism and our faith in the exodus through our baptism and our faith in the exodus of God's one-of-a-kind Son, God the Father has made us his adopted sons. We are adopted sons. We are heirs through adoption. Now, you know, in the ancient world, this was pretty significant. I mean, Paul's writing to uh, a Roman culture and... In ancient Rome, adoption had a powerful meaning. You see, when a child was born biologically, the parents had the option of disowning the child for a variety of reasons. And, and so, if you're born into a family, that relationship was not necessarily desired by the parent. It was not necessarily permanent. Not so, however, if the child was adopted. In Rome, adopting a child meant, number one, the child was freely chosen by the parents and desired by the parents, and number two, the child would be a permanent part of the family. Parents could not disown a child they adopted. An adopted child received a new identity, and any prior debts that the child brought with him or her were erased. They were forgiven. Being adopted made someone an heir of the father and a joint sharer in all the father's possessions. Now, think about what that means for us Christians. Being adopted by God through Jesus Christ, being adopted means that we are fully forgiven. We are fully desired. We are fully loved. And all of this comes through the exodus, the, the saving work of God's one-of-a-kind son, Jesus Christ. You see, God sent his one-of-a-kind son into the world in order to adopt sons throughout the world. And what better reason do we have 
to cry out, Abba, Father, as St. Paul writes. You are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through is one of a kind son, Jesus Christ. To God be the glory and thanks and praise be to God through Christ is one of a kind son. Amen. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. Amen.